Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 8 of the Double Density Podcasts with your host, Brian and Angelo. So, Angelo, I think we need to start this episode by talking about uh, your Lord and Savior, uh, Apple Incorporated. And uh, so, earlier this week on Monday, it was WWDC, and you took the day off and you sat down in the comfort of your own home to watch the presentation. So, what did you think? It was one of the best uh, keynotes in years. They... um. They really played to their audience this year because uh, they've disappointed the developers a lot in the past, especially with the release of the most recent MacBook Pros and the non-release of the Mac Pro. Uh, they uh, kind of went back to their old ways of several years ago where they're actually keeping up with the rest of the market and uh, doing some speed bumps, which they did with the, uh, I think, the entire laptop line the notebooks all got updated even the old little uh macbook air although it wasn't much of an update it's an old processor that they put in it's probably because the uh the previous process they were using is not even made by intel anymore so they had to kind of change and uh, it didn't even get a new badge on the uh website where you see uh, everything's new well the air didn't get one of those cute little badges uh, but they did show off some uh some new imacs as well and then there was a big surprise of the iMac Pro, which is a complete monster of a of an iMac. Uh, right. So it retails for five thousand dollars USD, and what is that? That's a lot of processing power. I think that starts at eight cores. Uh, the iMac I use is a four core iMac with only eight gigs of RAM because that's all I really need. But these start with the eight cores. They come with a terabyte of SSD space, faster SSDs, and. Uh, 32 gigs of RAM out of the box, but you can put that up to 128, and that's uh, the uh, error check, checking and correcting the ECC RAM. I don't know what that actually stands for, but I know it's better. And um, it's not a Mac for normal consumers. It seems like it's expensive, but the people that buy these types of computers don't really care about the price that much. Apparently, they said a comparable spec PC with a screen would cost about $7,000. I don't know where they get their numbers, so... Let's let's just say it's it's competitively priced for what you get, and mere mortals like us would not be buying that type of computer. If you had the computer, though, what would you use it for? Recording podcasts and be wasting a lot of <laughs> a lot of its computing power because it's it it wouldn't. I don't even tax this iMac, and it's uh, a year and a half old. Uh, I was hoping you'd say things like playing solitaire. Oh, that would have been funny. Damn it. Well, you know what? Yeah. Just pretend it's your joke. There you go. I'm giving it to you. Thanks, Brian. You're so helpful. So you have, but there is good news for you on the personal side, though, of things that you had wished and hoped and prayed to the Apple gods for that you've gotten. Well, so uh, one thing is uh, I got some good dad jokes. I don't know if you watched the keynote, but every year, uh, Craig Federighi, who's the head of uh, software uh, at uh, Apple, software engineering, I think, uh, he uh, tends to make... uh, weed jokes because there's a place in they all name their uh, their os releases after places in california and they um they one year pretended to name uh the new os weed as a joke and uh then uh, this year though they kind of went in that direction he made a half-baked joke and then he said the the new os is going to be called high sierra h-i-g-h yeah and and that wasn't a joke though so hi Sierra, a, a new Mac OS. What does it entail? Like what what's in there that um, is an upgrade? And not much actually. It's one of those uh, smaller upgrades where it's 
they kind of fix things under the hood. There's no huge user-facing features that they really touted. It's just more of a of a stabilization release, which is really welcome on a platform like the Mac where it pretty much does everything we need. Like last year, they kind of shoehorned uh, Siri into the uh, the OS, and it wasn't that great. But aside from the, the dad jokes that I found fun... So before I forget, so he's making these dad jokes. I did not watch it on Monday because I was living my best life, which means living a life away from a computer. And I'm just curious, how does the audience react to these dad jokes? They sort of chuckle. They're developers. They're not exactly... Uh... Uh, they're they're there to have a good time you better watch out what you're saying right now yeah no they're 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 nice people uh, they're like me but uh, being in their shoes I, I kind of have a chuckle but i think uh the collective uh twitterverse all kind of groaned but it was fun okay good and how long was the presentation yet oh geez almost two and a half hours it was long but the personal news you were actually alluding to wasn't my dad jokes it was uh the fact that they finally updated the ipads and I'm definitely going to get one. And what's nice is that the iPad I wanted, I wanted a 256 gigabytes of storage. That was the top tier before. Now it's the middle. So it actually went down uh, over $150. So it's not bad. So what is it retail for in Canadian dollars now? Uh, $1,179. And previously it was over 1300 Okay. So that's pretty good. And it's it seems to have got some decent... Uh, speed bumps. And one of the things that was stopping me from buying the 12.9 inch iPad was that uh, I didn't have feature parity with the 9.7. So there were some things that it did better and some things that were better on the the 9.7 inch Pro, which were the the nice screen and the the true color tone where it kind of matches the whites to the lighting of the room. Now both uh, iPads, the smaller and the bigger Pro, are completely equal except for the screen size and they actually came out with a new screen size a 10.5 inch uh, screen so now they have a more uh, defined ipad lineup where they have the mini at the bottom end Uh, although it's actually more expensive than the low end bigger ipad because of the storage options i think the mini isn't long for this world uh, to be honest well, I think the Mini is not long for this world because of the fact that like there are larger screen iPhones too, right? Yeah. It, the, when I see somebody's uh, iPhone 7 or 6S Plus uh, and compared to my iPad Mini, which I love, I really like the iPad Mini, it's, um, it's kind of startling how big it is and how, how not much bigger the iPad actually is. Yeah, the, the 12.9 inch is definitely the one I want to get. I want to get it as something I can use also sort of as a quasi-laptop. And the changes they made, made to iOS 11 that are going to be coming out in the fall for the iPad are pretty significant in pushing it towards being a more laptop-like experience with an iPad. So you can get a lot more work done. I, I don't. They didn't really talk about the feature we were mentioning I wanted where you can record uh, two things of audio, but... We'll see when uh, when they get there. We'll see if anybody can make some apps for that. I'm still here. I was I was trying to think of something witty to say, but I have nothing. You have nothing. nothing eh? Sorry. So pivoting from the iPad to a new, uh, I guess, the, would you call it a peripheral? Like, what would you call uh, this um, new item? An accessory, I guess. It's the it's a different product line. It's it's something they played with in the past with the iPod Hi-Fi, which was a a speaker, and this is priced the exact same way. Uh, it's the HomePod. It's the um, it's the speaker that everybody was talking about that Apple might come out, but they kind of are positioning it sort of in between what the Echo and the Sono speakers are, so you can actually have it in multi-room, so it, it'll talk to, to 
its little brothers around the, the house, or you can have it as one. Uh, it's going to be pretty expensive when it comes out here. It's it's uh, it's three fifty US. Uh, just to give you an idea, the Sonos Play Ones are one ninety nine. It does a little bit more than those. It sounds better than the Echo, so it's kind of a mix. But it would have been nice to have been a little less expensive. But it's I guess it's fairly priced considering uh, how good it apparently sounds. But we don't know, and we're not going to get one uh, in Canada for a while because they announced it for um, the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. So it seems like they only really have it for uh, countries that only have English as the first language and only language, whereas here uh, and anywhere else where there's multiple languages or something other than English, it's not coming out just yet. I guess they still have to perfect Siri in that. But um, the other thing that reminds me is that Apple Music is now two years old, and um, it's really changed the way I listen to music. And having something like the HomePod could be a lot of fun because we do listen to music a lot, a lot in the house. We play it mostly on the Apple TV from the TV speakers, which are okay. Uh, but it would be nice to have something to say, hey, play this and it'll play it. It'll be kind of cool. So how long have you been subscribed to Apple Music? Uh, since uh, they started, I started with the free trial. It started in June of 2015, towards the end of June. And um, I've been using it since. It had some growing pains at first. It a few little things here and there didn't work properly, but um, it's come into its own over the past couple of years. I had never really tried uh, Spotify. I was going to, and I, I didn't really like the app. I didn't feel like signing up to something that and giving out my credit card to somebody else. So, and I figured the Apple Music thing was going to be coming out really soon, so I'd, I'd give that a shot instead since they have all my information. And that's the thing with Apple. They, they kind of grab a hold of you by keeping you in their ecosystem and making things that much easier to use. But it significantly changed how much music I listen to because now I just have whatever I want whenever I want it. And it's pretty great. So, uh, I mean, having access to that much music certainly is sort of paradoxical because you have that paradox of choice, right? Because you have so much in front of you that a lot of the times you don't even know where to start. So, I mean, I think for me, and I mean, I'm subscribed to Spotify, so I guess we can talk about both services in a similar kind of way. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a very interesting service. I often find myself uh, sort of overwhelmed with the choices I have, and I, for some reason, keep going back to the same random albums instead of discovering new things. And I know there are radio functions, and I know that there are custom playlists and things like that out there, as well as, uh, uh, you know, regular playlists made by other users and Spotify themselves. But I just, for some reason, I just get stuck on the music I already listen to. And I, it's a bit of a problem for me. I don't know if you have the same issue. I do face decision paralysis when I'm faced with all that music. There's so much choice. I'm bombarded with different options. The The issue I come across, though, is uh, Apple Music would be really great at, at recommending stuff. And it recommends some good things, but it also recommends a lot of stuff I don't really care for. And that's because... Uh, my daughter likes listening to a lot of music as well, and she has pretty good taste in music. Uh, she likes Taylor Swift, which I, I'm the one who introduced her to Taylor Swift. So because of her love of Taylor Swift, there's a lot of country music that's uh, sent my way, and I don't really like country too much. We also listen to a lot of uh, children's soundtracks uh, when we're having family music time. But family music time yeah so in well in the evening instead of watching tv oftentimes we'll put in some music and i think we discussed this in one of our earlier episodes but trolls is a big hit here and so is the actual uh soundtrack so uh who gets to pick the music during family music time one of the kids they take turns whoever's screaming the loudest 
No, that's not. That's not true. My kids aren't that bad. <laughs> Do you ever get to like wedge in your two cents there? Are you like, listen, tonight is Steely Dan night? No, well, not classic rock, but uh, I sometimes do get to kind of uh, shoehorn my ideas into that, uh, especially in the car when I'm driving, and I really don't feel like listening to the Annie soundtrack again. Uh, I'll kind of force them to listen to uh, some. 90s alternative as long as i try i do try to keep the music uh, to uh non-explicit uh, albums when the family's around so you're not playing the non HDL's downward spiral album when your daughter and your son <laughs> no, are around you they don't need to hear that uh you know it's funny you mentioned the nine inch nails because uh trent reznor is an apple vp now which is kind of funny when like your daughter's like daddy i want to listen to dr dre and she's like 11 what do you do he also works for Apple. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. I'm kind of I'm kind of making my way through the uh, VP list. Oh, okay, great, good job. You know how to please me. Uh, so yeah, no, it would definitely be a no for any sort of gangster rap and uh, things of that nature. But we do like music. So no Slayer. So you're not gonna sit around and drink family music time and listen to Slayer. No, no Slayer. So yeah, and, and I'm tuning out of this conversation then. It's it's funny because ever since uh, I've been able to listen to all these songs, one of my main uh, music recommendation en- uh, engines is uh, Brian Hasty. Right. I feel like you and I have a really good relationship in terms of like things we like to tell each other to listen to. And I don't know about you, but I do actually go and, and listen to the things you, you, you force upon me. Oh, I do too. I do. I do too a lot of time. I mean, so to be fair though, the recommendations is like 80% earnest, 20% troll, I feel like. Yeah, you um, send me like Meshuggah albums. So I will make you listen listen to stuff. So for example, I recently saw a, uh, a horror chord duo by the name of Horror, H-O-9-9-0-9, it's stylized, but it's pronounced horror. And uh, they make scary rap music and I tried to make you listen to it and you clapped out within like five seconds or yeah, something. That, yeah. That, 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 so that was a troll. Okay. I, I'm, I'm glad that wasn't uh, an earnest actual uh, recommendation because you, you completely got that one wrong. But then there's stuff you totally get right. Especially female fronted rock, which is a, something that you thoroughly enjoy. I do. I really do. What did, what I can't think of something you've recommend recommended now that I've totally latched onto, but there are a few things. There's definitely, and I mean, there's definitely a lot both ways too. So I feel like it, it's services, streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music have made it easier for you and I to have conversations. Then I can open my phone and hit the search function, and within a couple of minutes, I'm listening to something you've recommended to me. And I find it sort of liberating in that it makes it a lot easier for me to sort of uh, explore. Uh, new acts or acts that I haven't checked out in a while. Um, but pre-streaming, like, w- how were you consuming music prior to June 2015? Well, that's the thing. Between, uh, well, there was a big period of time where I kind of stopped listening to new music and just sort of listened to what I had. Uh, I wouldn't really... Uh, I, I never really liked downloading music illegally. I mean, I will not comment upon that to say that I'm not unfamiliar with uh, these concepts and uh, same same here i i did download a few albums in my day uh i i tried to use kazaa which was terrible that 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 was like a uh, a malware delivery device uh, in the late night it really was a malware like uh, a malware bomb disguised as a, a file sharing app like i think that one was by far the worst it was really bad like napster was okay uh there was a lot of mislabeled stuff 
uh, most of it actually mislabeled. Which is another episode unto itself, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, this new song, it's Nirvana, and it really wasn't. Or they used to do that, it's like, oh, live version of something or other by this guy, and it was totally wrong. The Actually, the last thing I actually bought before Apple Music, it was also something you kind of uh, recommended to me, and that was Lana Del Rey. And I bought all I bought the albums that were available. Uh, I I really like those albums. They're really great. Uh, but this is not the music review hour. Uh, no, so it could be, but maybe it's a new segment we should include called Angela's Catching Up with the Hits. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of the, my habits, between 2005 and 2015, uh, I didn't really buy much music. I would buy actual CDs and rip them still, like an old man. Uh, occasionally, I would buy something on iTunes, but it was mostly podcasts that I would listen to. And we've established I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Do you remember your first iTunes uh, purchase? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I have mine. It's from like 2007, I think, or 2008. I bought an Eric Lapointe Best Of. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I- I'm scared to open iTunes because iTunes is such a garbage piece of software that I'm scared it'll crash and screw up our recording. So I'm not going to open iTunes. But um, I-, I don't know. Maybe an Alanis album? Okay. That's, okay. that's a strong possibility. Yeah, for me, it's at that point that I'm unashamed uh, in listening to him at all. But yeah, it's this weird thing where I think similarly to you, I just, I either consume digitally or I was really big on um, music blogs, right? So not necessarily downloading uh, music, but streaming music through various websites was a, a big thing for me for a while, especially when I got back into uh, rap music and rap blogs, love to post links to streaming um, songs uh, circa, you know, 2007, 2008. Yeah, now it's just easy. Uh, one... Well, it's easy with an asterisk, because I'll, I'll get into this in a sec. But yeah, it's easy with an asterisk. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with that in terms of uh, if you're looking for something even less than mainstream like you can find pretty much anything on apple music or spotify they both have a catalog of i think about 40 million songs that's a lot of songs but from time to time there are certain things you won't find in there because if you're looking for uh some uh, an obscure well not even just obscure so for example like i can't listen to taylor swift's 1989 because that's an apple exclusive this just in since the recording of this podcast episode, Taylor Swift's entire discography has been re-added to all streaming services as of Friday, June 9th, 2017. The move, it is believed, is a subtle jab at once friend but now enemy Katy Perry, whose album Witness was also released on June 9th. We now return back to our regularly scheduled podcast programming. Double density. Oh yeah, it's true, right? That's And I, I think that's actually Taylor Swift's doing because she's not... She, there's a whole thing with her and Apple Music when that came out that... There's a weird conspiracy theory there about her possibly kind of her and Apple kind of colluded in and creating this this weird back and forth where she wrote this impassioned letter about artists being paid properly during the free period because it was pretty crummy of Apple they weren't going to be paying artists during that free period which right. makes no sense to uh, me it's, they should they should front the cost of that from yeah from what i remember is at the launch i think of apple music they weren't going to pay anyone and then she yeah as you're saying she wrote this thing and then a lot of people are sort of on the internet claiming that taylor swift's um actions have helped actually save apple music streaming service because it brought that much more attention to it it's possible. Uh, I think now they mentioned that they're up to 27 million subscribers. And with Apple Music, every single one of those is a paying subscriber. There's no free tier. Uh, and I think artists like that quite a bit about Apple Music because they will get uh, 
paid. I mean, uh, streaming music doesn't pay anywhere near as much as uh, what musicians used to get paid previously when when there was an actual record industry. Now it's more about uh, your 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 CD. Well, your, it's not even a CD. Your album uh, kind of promotes you, but you make your money from different things. Is that correct, Brian? Well, even there, so if you are a uh, major label artist, so within the last 10 years, the 360 deal has come into play for a lot of these people, right? Which means that uh, your record label gets a piece of everything, including your merch, your uh, tour earnings, so everything there in exchange for signing you. So uh, flipping the conversation a bit, I mean, I, uh, in a past life, quote unquote, managed a couple of musical acts who put... Um, their catalogs on streaming services such as Spotify and Apple Music. So I kind of, I know a bit of the ins and outs on the other end. So I think we were talking about uh, uh, these streaming services as a consumer, but I can also talk about them uh, streaming services as a creator or a manager of content, right? Yeah. So uh, it's a bit of an interesting sort of thing. So there are middlemen involved. So you don't necessarily approach each streaming service individually. I mean, you can, and they each have different... um, uh, thresholds at which point they'll do business with you but there are a lot of middlemen who you pay an annual fee to so usually it's a hundred bucks a year and they throw uh, your stuff onto uh, both streaming as well as onto things like iTunes and Amazon and uh, Google Play so um, and they take a cut of each of the purchases there too so what happens is basically every quarter you get uh, a certain amount of money in your uh, so one of the services I was using was TuneCore so TuneCore has a wallet and every two or three months, you get X amount of money uh, coming through the wallet that you could then send to uh, a bank account or a PayPal address. And they weren't huge sums, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. They weren't huge. Some of them were surprising in terms of the numbers. So especially for um, one artist I had for both Spotify and Apple Music, they were paying out like 40 bucks a month. Oh, that's actually not too bad. And I mean, for the number of streams that they were getting, it was great. Like, I was kind of surprised. I was lowballing it uh, quite a bit. But yeah, it ended up being uh, a fair amount of money. And then, uh, and that was just on the streaming side. I wasn't even talking about the purchasing side, you know, so going on to iTunes or, or Google Play and buying an album. And then, you know, iTunes gets their cut and then, or Amazon or Google gets their cut. And then, you know, you get the net profits of that. That's not bad still. I mean, these, they, you still can make some money from selling your music now. Well, I was listening to a podcast, wink, wink, uh, uh, where this guy, his name is Brian Slagle, and he's the owner of Metal Blade Records. So it's one of the larger, if not the largest independent um, uh, metal uh, record company in the world. And he was actually mentioning that last quarter was the first quarter in which his artists were seeing great profits in streaming uh, in a relevant way. Because apparently for a lot of years, a lot of his acts were complaining that they weren't getting paid enough or, you know, they weren't seeing enough money, but now there are enough people on board playing their music that they're finally seeing checks that make sense for them. Oh, that's pretty good then. It's actually, it seems to be working. It is good. I mean, there is a ways, there is a, there is a ways to go. And as you were saying, like it's nowhere near the cut that you get uh, for records uh, back in the day. Cause usually you're looking at something like, oh, I'd say for every $10 record, you were maybe getting a dollar, maybe. Yeah, that's not very much. Unless um, you sell a million records. Yeah, then you have to uh, pay your manager, uh, pay your business agent, pay your booker. So you uh, just break your taxes. at the end. Yeah, I mean, a million dollars does sound great, but at the same time, once you start doing the math on a platinum record, you're right in terms of uh, even now, a lot of the money is made on the road and is made in merch. So things like um, meet and greets for lower tier artists, for artists that are playing 
venues of you know a couple hundred to a couple thousand that helps sustain them and keep them on the road you know and, and sometimes guarantees uh for live shows aren't what they used to be either depending on the situation right so you got to figure out your different revenue streams so uh things like meet and greets uh and then when you're launching your album things like merch packages so t-shirts and patches and guitar picks and whatever you can think of uh you know and i've seen a lot of crowdfunding efforts we even ran one for one of our acts uh that helped pay for recording costs significantly right so in exchange for that we promised either a digital download a physical download a t-shirt or a hoodie or you know xyz uh, depending on the tier you paid in for so that definitely helped uh, record the album um, that they wanted to get done which was great and then it's kind of like pre-ordering but just at a distance right so it wasn't like a 30-day pre-order it was a a year or an eight-month pre-order oh it's uh it's interesting how far ahead that goes i i mean like being an artist and and as i explained to a lot of my acts you know very realistically it's it's a question of how it's not a question of how much money are you going to make it's a question of trying to mitigate how much money you're going to spend uh, in in order to be able to do this viably and without putting yourself in debt to the point where you can't even be a musical act anymore. That, that's a that's a good way of, of thinking about it. And now you're going to have to apply that to podcasting. Listen, we're looking for sponsors, everyone. So if you want to go ahead and tweet at us, double underscore density. If you want to join us on Facebook, look up double density podcast or facebook.com slash double density podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at double density podcast. Shoot us your ideas or if you're a business looking for new opportunities let us know because we'd be willing to shill for you no problems no questions asked Double Density. Welcome back to the Double Density Podcast. So, Angelo, another week, <laughs> another news story about aliens. So, this week, Fox News Science, which is a new one to me, is reporting that a giant hole on Mars could be the work of aliens, uh, researchers say. So, I'm using researchers liberally because we'll explain who they are in a second. But uh, so, NASA recently released some images uh, of uh, Mars itself, and apparently, there's a giant hole on it, according to uh, <laughs> Secure Team 10, which is a YouTube channel that is uh, basically, as far as I can tell, and as far as I've been watching, uh, it are just conspiracy theorists who see aliens in everything. So, they uh, had this video where they say that there's this hole on Mars, and it's probably alien. So. The, I came across this on the Reddit UFO subreddit, uh, and some the person who posted that said, this is why nobody takes UFO researchers seriously. And he's right. With stuff like this, nobody wants to take them seriously, especially if you're going to mention that this Secure Team 10 are researchers. They're far from researchers. They're just guys. Is it guys? Is it one guy? I don't know who they are, but they're just putting videos on YouTube and saying that they're, they're some sort of aliens or whatever. They just kind of make things up as they go along. And it really hurts the people that are actually trying to do good work. There's actual scientists from places, uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, NASA, I think you say NASA? 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 Yeah, NASA. They're, they do stuff with space. And uh, they're the ones who, who took the pictures with the funny little robot they sent there. Nowhere, if you go to their website, they don't talk about it being caused by aliens. They say it's possibly an impact crater or uh, a lava tube, something like that. But nowhere do they talk about it being aliens. It's really cool, that's for sure. So I would, 
I would treat Secure Team 10 and, and researchers the same way that uh, John Madden with that little uh, play-by-play pen is a researcher, right? You know, they do doodles on actual uh, evidence and hope for the best in their theories. So in watching this six-minute uh, Secure Team 10 video, and at any point that I pause and say, you know what? This guy's right. Because if you look at these pictures... You know, it could, it does honestly look like an impact crater or it does look like almost anything. It could be a sinkhole. It could be, you know. Yeah, they mentioned it could of, be a collapse pit. Yeah, it could be uh, any number of a hundred kinds of different things, right? But I mean, this is nothing new for Mars, right? So uh, the hole in question is located on the south uh, polar pole of uh, the planet. And more famously, or most famously, I guess, right? Uh, let's talk about Cydonia, which is located on the north side of um, the planet. So in 1976, the Viking 1 and 2 orbiter probes took pics that apparently revealed uh, a face on Mars. So this is probably something that's m- more well-known than this newer crater, right? Angela, you, you've heard of the face on Mars, I, I assume? So the first time I heard of the face on Mars, I was watching Unsolved Mysteries, and that thing scared the hell out of me. Uh, it looked so convincing, and uh, coupled with Robert Stack's voice saying how this was a strange uh, discovery on Mars, I was pretty much convinced there were Martians. And uh, my young brain could not handle it because this was an early episode of, of Unsolved Mysteries, I think. I'd have to, I think we can probably look up the, the air date of that one, but uh, it really scared me. Then later on, with better photography, we got a picture of what the face on Mars was. And it wasn't a face at all. It was just a bunch of little hills. And so this is what's called pareidolia, where humans are kind of pre-programmed to see faces in everything. So oftentimes it'll be uh, the face of a religious figure in a grilled cheese or um, something interesting in a cloud. Like some people, I know one guy who claims to have seen Yoda in a cloud. I like how you're taking subtle shots at me here. Uh, If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Instagram dot com slash brian mtl just fyi i really like that picture actually it it did sort of look like yoda right and i wasn't looking for yoda in that picture but i think it's it's emblematic of what you're talking about here and i think it's kind of funny and i think the big takeaway for me um about all this is just how far we've come in terms of imaging right because if you compare those viking one and two orbital pictures versus this hole in mars night and day in terms of progression right well, it doesn't even look real. It looks like it's uh, it's computer imaging, but it's it's a real picture. See, why do you have to say that? Because now conspiracy theorists will say, like, of course, like we haven't visited Mars. There's a secret astronaut corps. These pictures are all made up by uh, NASA. NASA. <laughs> Sounds like a, a cheer, a really bad cheer. Uh, <laughs> buffering, buffering. <laughs> I think I've broken your brain with my conspiracy theory talk. But yeah, I um, I definitely think it's nine day, and I think it's it's so amazing that we can now get pictures of uh, a planet that's so far away that we're planning on having people visit in the near future. Apparently, and they're probably never gonna come back. But that's another story entirely. But yeah, it's this crazy thing where it's it's gorgeous and uh, it's full of you know details that you never saw with the Viking probe. So if you wanted to actually get a picture of the face on Mars from NASA, what you had to do is you had to mail away to get a microfilm, and then you had to find a printer that could print up all of the different sections of the face on Mars in order for it to work properly, right? So basically what you're doing is you're rotoscoping your microfilm to blow it up in order to be able to observe and take a look at the printout. People actually did that back then? Oh, it was the best way to do this kind of thing. Absolutely. Microfiche. 
Yeah, that's that's the real hardcore researching. None of this sitting on your butt and just going to Google. So speaking of researching scientists, pseudoscientists, etc., let's talk about one of my favorite people on Earth, the greatest man-slash-hair combo in all of ufology. I'm talking about Richard C. Hoagland, the man who uh, is <laughs> the face of the face on Mars, if you want to put it that way. So he... Uh, he in the 90s from, uh, came to prominence in terms of the man that you went to if you wanted to talk about the face on Mars in Cydonia and the dark side. And he believed that uh, the face on Mars was emblematic of an ancient alien civilization on Mars. And also, just randomly, oh, they also built pyramids too. Well, they did everything. They're, they're the original ancient aliens. I mean, if you really wanted to start looking at it that way, absolutely. And it's funny, like, if you want to take some time, not that I suggest you'd ever want to, but if you want to go down the rabbit hole, he also claims that uh, NASA NASA is covering up the face on Mars story. He believes that they don't want you to know about the true um, intentions of this four-letter agency or, you know, the government behind it, and that he is a very large proponent of the face on Mars and believes it to be true, despite the fact that, it, as you were saying before, it was easily discredited once we got better images of the same area after 1976. To play devil's advocate, though, uh, one can say that the people that presented those pictures showed that they're the ones who gave us this this new picture just to disprove the old pictures that they took. The thing is, is that if they had taken the old pictures and noticed the face on Mars, they would have covered it back then, then and there, no? I mean, I'm of two minds, right? Because this is where kind of conspiracy theory... I mean, let's go either way, right? So either they uh, released it not seeing an image, or they released it seeing an image in order to discredit all of these crazy people who thought that it was an actual literal image in Cydonia, Right. Yeah, that's that's a strong possibility as well, and that's how conspiracies work. Disinformation, right? Exactly. So, I mean, so Richard C. Hoagland has been perpetuating uh, this story and still stands by it. And uh, if you go to his website, I mean, if you want to go spend a lot of time reading about absolutely almost nothing. Uh, I almost don't want to go to his website to ruin my Google searches. <laughs> I don't need Google tracking me all the way to that weird website. Enterprise Mission, yeah, it's, it's the most insane thing. So he had his own um, internet radio show uh, two years ago. So he started mid-2015, and then uh, I listened in, and it was fun for a little while, then sort of depressing because it was just a man ranting for two hours a night about whatever he wanted, and then he always tied it back to the face on Mars. And, and it's sort of sad. All these other concepts that he hasn't necessarily grasped, grasped the meaning of a lot of the time. So he's, even among UFO researchers, he's not really taken seriously because he, uh, it, it also goes back to what I was saying before with people like Secure Team 10. They, they ruin the reputation of other people that are looking into UFOs. They think more clearly about these things and kind of try and tie it into science. This is nothing, really. He, he just goes off on his own, and any time that something comes up that can possibly disprove what he's saying about the face of Mars, well, it was planted by the people in the conspiracy against it. And I think it's once again one of these things, right, that it's so hard to disprove that it, it exists by virtue of that, right? So you can't disprove the ancient Mars civilization because we've never been there in any concrete kind of ways, right? Well, no, because you can disprove it in this case because we've taken high-res images of where he's saying all this stuff is, and the images he's working with are low-resolution, so you can kind of put whatever you want in it. It's sort of like a Monet where you're like standing further away and you can kind of 
see something and then when you get closer you can't really see what it is uh, but with the high-res images you see exactly what it is it's just rocks or a mountain range right but you can you can once again play devil's advocate and claim that nasa nasa is out to discredit richard c hoagland and all of his findings by uh, introducing doctored images of the face on mars in order to silence him and and there we go in a circle right well absolutely that's the sir that's the the circle of conspiracy theories because you can keep going that way forever and ever you'll never you'll never actually prove anybody's point the people that are are right no absolutely and the things that like you're very in terms of it being circular right because once again you can't disprove a claim so therefore it exists in this state where it is quasi true until proven false and then the manners where it is often proven false are just a way for the haters to get at you, you know, so you can continue uh, being virtuous. And I think we talked about this in the last episode, but the idea of um, ufologists only having their reputation to their name, right. In a, a, an area that where there's so scant actual evidence, right. So even in the face of actual real evidence to the contrary, in this case, uh, disproving the face on Mars, it still hasn't uh, deterred him from talking about it openly in such a way that he thinks that it's still there. That was a good uh, pun dad joke with uh, in the face of real evidence for the face on Mars. <laughs> You're slowly rubbing off on me, I think. I think I'm doing well. Double density. So what is the first time that you heard uh, about the face on Mars? Do you remember? Well, I mentioned it, right? We right. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, sorry, I meant more like in the terms of like concretely researching it. Oh, so, yeah, so I heard about it on, on Unsolved Mysteries, but much later on when I started getting even more interested in this, once we, uh, the internet opened up because this Unsolved Mysteries episode was, if not in the late 80s, early 90s, so, because I'm old, uh, I guess I started kind of looking into it, because my earliest searches on the internet uh, first was Alanis Morissette websites, because it was 1995, and that was uh, my uh, my my big crush and an obsession in music. But after that, it was Area 51 and uh, the face on Mars and UFOs and all that stuff because there was, even in its infancy, that was an area where people were, uh, it was an area of intense interest really on the internet. Wasn't that the Black Vault, one of the, uh, the earlier internet sites? That sounds familiar to me. Yeah, so there was something, uh, there there were all kinds of interesting things, and then later on there were, uh, the Freedom of Infra- Information Act allowed certain things to be posted online, uh, so that's when I started really looking into it, and then uh, NASA went and took better pictures of the face on Mars, and that's where it all fell apart, really. And I'd already started becoming much more skeptical about all this stuff uh, at that point, once I started actually looking into it, uh, but... It's still interesting, right? And I started uh, wondering why people would still think there's a face on Mars. Like, if if Richard Hoagland was an actual scientist, he would say, "Well, oh well, I was wrong. My theory doesn't doesn't uh, hold up to this. So let's move on to something else." Scientists, actual scientists, when their pet theory is proven wrong, they move on from it. I actually have a theory about Richard Hoagland. Actually, oh. I believe his perfect hair is controlling him. Does he have perfect hair? Look- he has great hair. For an older man, he has excellent hair. I'm going to post a picture of it later. His hair on point. Oh, geez. Uh, look at that. It's lush. 
It's beautiful. He sort of looks like the most interesting man in the world. For sure. So what I'm saying is I think the hair might actually be in control of him and his narrative about things like the face on Mars. He also has um, a whole set of theories around hyperdimensional uh, physics, which I'm not going to get into because it's very convoluted. Oh, really? I'm shocked. It's, it, I mean, if, if it's something that people are interested in, they can definitely go ahead and research that. I just... I have no interest in trying to sit here and explain it, especially since, you know, you, you are not oppositional to me. And I feel like uh, something like that would only be fun if you were oppositional to the evidence that it was presenting, which you're not. So that's fine. Yeah, it's, it's so uh, I'm sure we'll find something that we disagree on eventually. But uh, Richard C. Hoagland is not something that either of us uh, can uh, support uh, unless we're playing devil's advocate, because it, as interesting as it would be if he was right about all this and... He's really worked hard on this. If you look at his theory about Cydonia and he's measured that dis- distances from the pyramids, and as soon as you start working with numbers, you kind of get to start playing with them and making them fit the narrative. Uh, but it's still, he put in a lot of thought and work into his theory. It's, it's unfortunate that it's, it's completely wrong and impossible, uh, especially once we've seen the better images. But again, those images could have been faked. So speaking of... Uh... Things like that. Uh, I forgot to mention at the top, and I wanted to sort of keep this uh, till now, I guess. Uh, he's also a 9-11 is an inside job kind of guy. I was perusing a forum and uh, talking to a few people about certain things. I, I came up with a theory that if you, uh, a Venn diagram of 9-11 conspiracy theorists, climate change deniers, and va- anti-vaxxers would just make a perfect circle. Oh, I believe that. So let me just read off something from his website. Enterprise mission, obviously. Uh, so they're talking about how there are coded numbers in everything that we live in and everything that uh, happens. So, for example, the attacks took place on 9-11. 9 plus 1 plus 1 is 11. Each World Trade Tower had 110 floors, which is a multiple of 11, etc., etc., etc. It looks like an 11. I don't even want to uh, go ahead and sort of talk about or give credence, I guess, to, to this. But yeah, it's, it's just more insanity, right? You kind of uh, go crazy at that point when you start wondering what all these things are and how they're connected. Uh, sometimes things just happen and they're awful, uh, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Just like those, uh, uh, as we mentioned, I think in episode two or three, the Nostradamus predictions, right? Yeah, those those are those are a lot of fun to to think about and kind of piece together and fit into something that actually works. But that's the only reason they work. The face on Mars, just the face itself, the image of it, always freaked me out. Even now, like as an adult, knowing it, that rationally it's not that, it's still, there's a visceral reaction for yeah, you? Yeah, there's a, it's a creepy, it almost sort of looks uh, reptile-like. Okay, I can, I can see that. It, it's, 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 it has a weird look to it. It's very, it, thinking, even thinking about it, the, the, the hair stands up on the end. It's, it's, not, it's not a friendly face. So if, if that was the face on Mars, imagine what they would do to us. What I'm beginning to understand as we're, we keep doing these um, podcasts is that a lot of different things scare you. Like creepypasta scares you. So I, I recently uh, suggested you looked up. <laughs> The Ben Drowned Creepypasta. So that was a suggestion of one of our listeners that you check that out. And it's a Zelda um, Majora's Mask, I think, uh, based creepypasta. And then two minutes in, you sort of stopped yourself and said, I'm not looking at this. I'm scared. Yeah, no, there was no way I was going to look at that. I I will. uh, It's a long entry, so I'm going to look at it when I get my new iPad. But I don't know if I'll look at it in the dark 
uh, on my giant iPad. Have you seen one of the the 12.9 inch iPads? It's like a it's like a dinner tray. Anyway, those things, th- those types of things really creep me out. And as somebody that's had uh, sleep paralysis episodes in the past, I haven't had many uh, recently, but I, I know what it feels like to be abducted by aliens and it's not pleasant. Tell me more about this. Well, so one of the theories about alien abductions, and I'm not saying this explains everything, obviously, but one of the main theories is is sleep paralysis. And I've experienced it. And it really fits uh, alien abductions to the T. And how do I know I'm not actually being abducted by aliens? Uh, sleep paralysis has happened to me with uh, my wife in bed next to me, and she, she just sees that I'm sort of freaking out, but she doesn't see any aliens. So I know there's nothing happening other than something in my mind. And the way sleep paralysis works is that your brain sort of wakes up, but the rest of your body's still sleeping, so you can't move it. And it feels like there's something pressing down on you, and you sort of see stuff that's not necessarily there. So it, it is a really terrifying experience. Funny you should mention all of this, though, because I was going to make a recommendation to you. I don't know if you know this, but there's a new documentary on Netflix about sleep paralysis called The Nightmare. It's actually not new. It's been on Netflix for a few, almost a year, I guess. Has it? Because it only popped up in my per- periphery, I guess, or like my uh, my dashboard um, within the last week. So I had I'd started watching it at one point, and then I didn't feel like watching it. Uh, and it, it's it might be one of those things where like. Uh, like Scott Pilgrim just popped up back up on my on my list uh, after many months of not being there because they lost the rights to it and they just got it back. So it could have been that it could have just disappeared off your uh, off the thing and come back. Now I I really should watch the nightmare. Actually, it, it seems like something I'd find interesting because it is something I've actually experienced. Do you ever get that thing where if you if you're involved in something or you don't necessarily want to watch something that brings you displeasure? Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, I, I don't like watching sad movies or things like that. I can't deal with that. Like, anything... Like, I'll never watch Marley and Me. Oh, I saw that in theaters. It's not a good idea. Yeah, no, I, I can't deal with... No, there's no way I can watch sad... Like, I just don't watch that. It's not It's not my thing. I'd, I do like watching scary things. That I, I like being scared. Uh, and uh, as we've established just in the past few minutes, that I, I am... I, I wouldn't say easily frightened... Like I'm not, I don't, I'm scared to leave the house or anything. I'm not a shut in, but, um, give it time though. Maybe all I need is a, a computer and a microphone and I can just uh, broadcast from here. And you can build yourself a little moat. Oh, I'm just throwing ideas out there. This is some free knowledge out there just for you. It'd protect me from the aliens, right? They can't get past moats. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if that was true? But I, I, <laughs> well, that, that, that's definitely the whole premise of uh, signs. Yeah, uh, I don't want to talk about that garbage movie. Let's not do this. Well, so uh, just one thing about signs, and it's what um, made you uh, point me to that VHS two uh, video that we talked about in the past. But the whole there's only one good scene in that movie, and it's when that kid films an alien walking down the street in Brazil or something. Right, it was the Brazilian birthday party, and then suddenly it shifts over and there's an alien walking down there. That image, even just thinking about it now, hair standing up on end. Best 15 seconds of the movie, because the rest of the movie I did not care for. Even as like a teenager who was hyped and like lived for things like this, by the end of the movie I was very disappointed because there's a very obvious plot hole in it that we won't get into because I really don't care. Um... 
let's invade a planet full of stuff that can kill us easily. Yeah, for sure. It's like the, you didn't have the instrumentation on board to figure out that most of our environment is uh, water-based, you know? Well, whatever. So, but that image, that type of, the gray alien has always freaked me out. And it's, it, it stems from the, the, again, Damn Unsolved Mysteries, watching that whole episode that uh, was revolving around uh, communion and uh, missing time and people being abducted by aliens. And that, um, that happened. I still remember a dream I had once when I was staring out the window and there was a UFO there. And of course, some people would say, oh, maybe it wasn't a dream. No, it was a dream. But what if it wasn't a dream? It was a dream. I like how our conversation went from the faces on Mars to you talking about how much Robert Stack um, molded your dream time. He scared me. He still does. Even in death, he scares me. He was a transformer. So pivoting quickly from aliens to rods. Oh, what's that? Oh, the producer is saying we've run out of time for this podcast. So we will not be talking about rods this week. Unfortunately, Angelo, are you okay with that? Poor rods. They keep getting kicked off uh, the end of the show. Like some poor sap of a comedian on a, on the tonight show. I mean, we'll get to rods soon enough. And both you and I have discussed this uh, uh, outside of the show enough that we will do an episode on rods. Just not today. Cause Unfortunately, uh, we're being told that we have to go now. It's too bad. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. Double Density. From Faces on Mars to Apple Music to the WWDC, this has been Episode 8. You can reach us on... Instagram, so Double Density Podcast, one word. Same thing on Facebook, facebook.com slash Double Density Podcast. Or you can reach us on Twitter, double underscore density. This has been episode eight of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we talk about our favorite AOL trial disc artwork. See ya. Bye. That was a good ASMR.